0: title of my uh, sermon this morning that I've handcrafted for you, Even Darkness is Light to You, if you take a copy of your scriptures or turn on your Bible and join me in Psalm 139, Psalm 139. As you're making your way to Psalm 139, you may be asking, why are we parachuting into God's big book in the Old Testament, and why Psalm 139? I have three specific reasons why. I have selected this text for all of our considerations, starting with myself. First, this psalm will put a healthy fear of God in all of us. Let me go back to 2007. Eric alluded to it. Uh, we were in France and in Switzerland, and we discovered that we could ski Mont Blanc. Um, there's some things that I should have recognized in the beginning to realize I was out over my skis in experience. First question we asked the gentleman was, or he asked us, are you experts? And the only time I've ever had that question posed skiing is when they determine what how tight they're going to make your bindings. And I didn't want my skis to fall off on Mont Blanc, so I said, of course, I'm an expert. The second indicator was the clamp-ons or cramp-ons as well as all the repelling gear that we wore as skiers. And I thought, well, I've never worn repelling gear while skiing and need, you know, clamp-ons. And, um, and then there was the insurance uh, because there's no way off the mountain. If you're hurt, you have to have a helicopter come get you. All of these things should have been indicators, but I'm not that bright. Um, and Eric is motivating me to do this extreme skiing. And we're going to ski Mont Blanc and we're going to ski in two countries. We're going to ski, start in France and then ski into Italy, six hour run all the way to the bottom. It would be spectacular. Well, once we got to our launching point, I literally looked at Eric. I don't know if he remembers this. Your pastor is extreme, okay? I'm not. Uh, I'm overweight. I just uh, not of um, ordinary, and I I just did it, you know. And I had a moment of weakness and agreed to his shenanigans, and um, I just remember at one point we're all roped together, uh, rappelling to the spot we're going to take off from, and I looked at him, and he just looked at me kind of funny, and I said, "I I want my mommy." I, I, I don't know, if, and I was just like, what are we doing? And I remember we getting to the edge, and they're like, that guy goes, take off, and my skis, I'm not joking, it was this steep. He says, you don't need your poles, you just kind of use your hands off the side of the mountain. And I'm like, what are we doing? I couldn't go. He kept saying go, I was, I'd go. <laughs> I just couldn't go, you know? It was horrible. Um, so I went, eventually, Eric went, he did fantastic. I was about five yards into the ski, and then it was Endover. And it looked like there was so much gear on the side of this mountain, it looked like a crime scene. It looked like something bad had happened there. Of course, it was me going Endover. And we skied our brains out. We had the best day of our lives. It's extremely memorable, a high point. The point is this, though. You need to respect the mountain. You needed to respect Mont Blanc. This text is the Mont Blanc In the Psalter. This text that we're gonna summit this morning is a text that will put a a healthy fear of God in, in all of us. That's the first reason. Reason number two this psalm is a theological game changer. You have to know that you live out your view of God every single day. So if you have a high view of God, right? You're you're gonna live that out. You're you're not gonna have a uh, you're gonna have a high view of living when you live out your view of God. So it's extremely important to develop that. So if you have a little God this morning, you have big problems. However, if you have a big God, as this text will put into us, if you have a big God, you have very very little problems, very very little trials. This. This morning. This is a big God text. One of my favorite quotes is from Abraham Kuyper, a little Dutch theologian, and he wrote God is sovereign over our lives. There is not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign, sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. This text is a big God text. And if you have a high view of God, it should produce in all of us a high standard of living. Third and final reason, and we'll get busy this morning. This text, listen to me, is the single greatest aid to my own personal sanctification. To realize this morning that there are no secret sins, that secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. To realize What you have to step over to sin and who you have to step over to sin, it it just changes it. It transforms your progressive sanctification. I can't tell you how often I find myself in this psalm, in this psalter, in this particular crown of all psalms here in Psalm 139. There are so many things in this text. Let me give you the framework, and let's get busy this morning, okay? The framework is simple. There are 24 verses, there are four sections, there are four attributes, all extolling an attribute of God, and because of those attributes, there are implications on us. For example, four implications. You can't have privacy, number two. You can't hide from God, number three. You cannot imagine the details. And number four, you can't be arrogant. You can't be arrogant. Those are the implications of staring at and riveting our attention on this particular Psalm, the Mont Blanc of Psalms here this morning. So let's get busy. What I want to do is just read the the sections as we go. Instead of reading the whole psalm, all 24 verses, we'll just read the first six. We'll deal with the particular attribute about God and we'll deal with the particular implication for us this morning. Fair? You ready? You got a copy of God's word? Look at Psalm 139, verses one to six. It is this. God's attribute here is perfect intelligence. In theology, we call it omniscience, and by way of implication, I want you to know this, you do not have privacy. Privacy is a myth. Look at the Psalter. Look at verses one to six. Oh Lord, you've searched me and you've known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down And are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before. You envelop me. You lay your hand upon me. What does this do in us? Such knowledge that I just read to you. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. It's mind boggling. It's mind blowing knowledge, there is what David says, the choir master here in Psalm 139, verses 1 to 6. Implication? You don't have privacy. Privacy is a myth. The first word, of this psalm sets the tone and subject of the psalm look at it oh lord and then he says you have what search me and you have known me this word search is the word for excavate or to dig or to look for an artifact. And if you've seen a dig on television or you've seen them unearth earth a dinosaur or an artifact, it's meticulous. It's, it's detailed. It's, it's, it's taking a light brush and just moving around the bones or around the artifact to preserve its, its historicity. It, it is the word here that the, the psalmist used that he excavates our lives. He, 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 he searches out our lives You could say it differently, maybe in modern vernacular. He can see right through a person. He can excavate. He knows the real you. You're not hiding anything from God. You can hide things man from man, woman from woman, etc., but you cannot hide things from God. He sees right through a person. He pierces, he excavates our hearts. He says, you've searched me and you have known me. Comprehensive exhaustive, perfect knowledge of your life. He has perfect intelligence about your life, and he does so effortlessly, right? It's comprehensive, it's exhaustive, it's thorough, right? Our lives are an open book before our God. So you might be asking this morning, how well does he know? I mean, how well does he search me? How well does he know me? I mean, give me the the details. Like, fill it out a little bit. A little bit of color here in the text. Well, that's exactly what verses 2 through 5 state. The text states, Oh Lord, you've searched me and you know me. Fact. The question is, how well does he know you? How well does he search you? How, How detailed is God in your life? Verses two through five walk through a number of scenarios to enhance the comprehensive, exhaustive, perfect intelligence of God in your life. How well does he know us? He knows us first there in verse two in everything I do, even down to the most casual acts, look at it. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. This morning when you sat down, in your seat, he knew that. He does it effortlessly with all kinds of people, millions upon millions of people. No burden, no difficulty at all. He knows you're rising, you're sitting, all of your casual acts, the psalmist says. God is in the details, folks. He's in the small stuff. He never misses a thing. He goes on there in the second part of verse two, you discern my thoughts from afar. Not only does he know our movement, he knows our motives. He knows why we do what we do. I can't know your motives. I can look at your actions and I can make some predictions and some assessments. But motive, God can evaluate motives. He knows not only what I do, but what I think It's incredible. He knows the inner recesses of my heart and he makes no assumptions about those motives. He's dead on accurate. He knows us better than we even know ourselves. Folks, there is no hypocrisy before God. He knows our actions. He knows our thoughts. Furthermore, verse three, he knows where we go. Look at it. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted in all my ways. It means to sift or to scrutinize would maybe be a a better way of saying it. There's this process of perfect discernment that he knows everything we do every night, every day, every show, every city, every hotel. It doesn't matter where you are in the world. God knows it and sees it. Do you see now why I said this is the single greatest aid to my personal sanctification? Is the acute awareness of the constant presence of God in our lives shapes how we live. There's no secret sin. Secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. He sees everything you do and think, right? He's intimately acquainted. We don't get away with anything with God. We can slip one by someone else. You can slip one by your parents. You will never slip one by the Lord. He keeps tabs on us. He does it with joy. He does it, it does it, it's not difficult for him. He is always the unseen, all-knowing guest in our lives. He continues, though. How well does he know us? Look at verse 4. Our speech even before a word is on my tongue, behold O Lord, you know it all together. He knows when you murmur. He knows before you even say it why you're saying it, what you're actually thinking, if you're manipulating words, you're manipulating language. Every single word that has been ever spoken, God knows it before it has been verbalized. That is powerful. That's depth. That's comprehensive knowledge. And lastly, he says in verse 5, he hems you in. He envelops you. It was the word they would use for a city when it was besieged in the ancient days and they would have a moat around it and it would be on a hill, a city on a hill like Matthew 5 talks about and it would be surrounded. It would be enveloped. It would be hemmed in, sieged, right? This is the word. God has hemmed you in. In other words, he has defined your life. He's drawn a circle around your life. Nothing happens to you, sir. Nothing happens to you, ma'am, without his divine awareness and providence to that event. He envelops us. He completely encompasses us. Folks, our lives are an open book, read by God, minute by minute, Day by day, step by step, thought by thought, active or passive, true or false, walking, resting, busy, idle, public, private, doesn't matter. It's all open before the eyes of our Lord because he's omniscient. He knows everything. He sees everything. He comprehends everything. He encompasses us. God is awesome. It's perfect intelligence. Matthew picks up on this and says, he even counts the very hairs on your head. That's how detailed God is. He does not miss a thing. The implication is this. You you can't pull the wool over God's eyes to use another idiom. You, you, you can't get away with every, anything. Secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. There are no time outs. You're never alone. There's never privacy. If you think you have privacy and you live behind some gate and, and you have a, a special lock and you got a ring doorbell, big deal. God sees you all the time. There's never a time if you're in Christ where he's not present in your life. Privacy is a myth. It's a joke. It's a joke. You have to live your life open and honest before a holy God. Well, what's David's reaction to this? Check it out in verse 6. Such knowledge, it's too wonderful for me. It's too high. I can't attain it. You could add some verbal, like it's mind-boggling, right? Right? It's wonder. God is infinite. We are finite. David cannot contain himself. He's the choir master. The Psalm would be read in public before worship began or as worship was, was happening, and he's just like, boom, it is crazy how awesome. It is beyond comprehension. It's lofty, it's weighty, it's heavy, it's unfathomable. Every word you could possibly muster up, it is true. He breaks out in doxology, right? It is a proper view of God when you understand that God knows everything about your life. It ought to bring about praise and wonder and, 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 and this kind of emotive doxological reaction, right? But then his theology awakens the practical side. And he goes from wonder to flight, Which we're now introduced to the second attribute, God's omnipresence here, and David, when he realized that God knows everything about his life, and of course, you know a lot about David's life if you know your Bible, he wants to run. He wants to get out of Dodge. He wants to take flight. And it's the second implication of this omnipresence is this, you cannot escape, you cannot run far enough. Escape is out of the question. Let's read it. Where shall I go from your spirit? And where shall I flee from your presence? Question, where do I go? Where can I, how, how do I outrun God? How do I get as far away from God as possible? Because David's now acutely aware of his sin. He says, well, let me give you some hypothetical possible scenarios. Suppose I ascend to heaven. I go north. As far as I can go, you're there. What if I go all the way into the inner recesses of the earth, into Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning, the speed of light, and I go as far as east is to the west and dwell to the remotest parts of even the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Ah, I got it. If I say, surely darkness... I'll use the cover of darkness. I shall cover me, and the light about me will be like night, right? Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, and here's our title, for darkness is as light with you. Can I escape? Let's ask Jonah. Let's interview Jonah. It's my favorite verse, Jonah 2.2. States, and Jonah prayed from the belly of a fish. You think you can outrun God? Really? Really? Jonah tries to go 2,000 miles in the opposite direction of God's will. He gets thrown overboard. He's inside the belly of a fish and then you see Jonah prayed. I'm telling you what, you will not escape God's presence. He's all knowing, he's all present. And so what he does here is the same thing he did in the first six verses. He wants you to give a little, understand the color. He wants you to understand how, how, how serious this is, how, how, how acute it is, how, how special it is that his presence is there. If I could do the following, you can't. But if you could, they're hypothetical but conceivable options. If I could do the following, then you are still there. He picks direction, heaven, and hell. He picks distance east and west at extreme speed. He's there. And then finally, darkness. He says, what if I use, you know, I get behind my gated community in Miami and I put out, you know, light darkening shades up and I get in the closet and I get kryptonite box and I get camouflage on. I used to hunt, now I live in Miami, you can't do that. But when I lived in the Midwest, I did that. And so now I got camo on, I chalk my face up, I look like a Navy SEAL. Doesn't matter with God. He sees you, he knows you, right? We cannot run, we cannot hide, we cannot use the cover of darkness. It's an inescapable presence, folks. Darkness can hide man from man. Darkness cannot hide God from man. God sees everything, he keeps tabs on us. So here's the question. We're midway through. Here's the question. And this is what's going on in David's heart. Because on one side, there's this delight in verse six. And on this other side, there's this troubling tension. Here's the question I have for you. Look up. Depending where you're at with Jesus this morning, is this content, is this knowledge of who our God is, because these are attributes that make God who he is, is this a thrill to you or is it a threat? It's depending on where you're at with the Jesus this morning. If you're in Christ and you've been forgiven and you, your eternity settled, this ought to comfort you that he's always present, always there. If you're in sin... Or you have a private sin. You think it's private. That's been dispelled this morning. But it depends where you're at. This could be a real threat to you. And that's what David's dealing with the text. At first, he's like, oh, praise the Lord. And then he went, ah, oh, David's done some things. We know what has David has done. And he wants to run as far from the presence of God. He wants to get out of Dodge. He wants to get gone, right? I don't know where you're at. Is this a comfort to you? Or is this bringing conviction to you? Is it wonderful or is it fearful? I don't know. It's just where you're at with the Lord this morning. But I want to bring those two reactions because they're biblical reactions and and biblical tensions. I want to bring them before you this morning and remind you that you never sin alone. You have no privacy and you cannot outrun God it is absolutely categorically impossible third third attribute third implication i can't imagine the details the attribute is omnipotence the power of god I cannot imagine the details that God can do anything. Verses one to six, David as he leads in worship says, hey, you gotta know God's all knowing. Verses seven to 12, you have to know he's all seeing. And in verses 15 to 18, you have to know he is all powerful. Look at verse 13. For you formed me in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it oh so well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret and intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was not one of them. Oh, how precious to me are your thoughts, O oh God. How vast is the sum of them. If I count them, they are more than the sand in Miami Beach. And when I awake, I'm still with you. God can do every, anything. He is all-powerful. And you know what he selects? You know what the psalmist selects as a way to demonstrate God's omnipotence his creation of a human life inside a mother's womb, which is by and large, vastly unseen, right? Now I know you moms use those little pictures, they're sonograms and you go, look, and we smile and we congratulate you, but it doesn't look like anything. We just need you to know that. But it's special, it's your baby, it's the beginning, right? But that's the best we got as a sonogram. And we smile, and we high-five, and I mean, we go all out. I saw one this morning on Facebook, and I, was, I kept staring. I'm like, boy, that looks like a kid. I could, you may be raising a kidney bean. You know what I'm saying? Like, it just, it's not right. Come on. But we do it graciously. Listen, God says I'm gonna create and be intricately involved with every single one of you in this room, and I'm gonna bring every piece of the details together, even down to he uses the word kidneys. I'm gonna even bring in the kidneys, I'm I, you know, embryotic state, prenatal state. I'm gonna go through every single one of you and I'm gonna build every single one of you, and by and large, <laughs> medically, it's unseen. He embroiders us. He forms us. He wove us. He knit us together. Look at the language there. He formed the organs, the bringing of each cell together, the adding veins, the nerves, the muscles, the skin, the frame, everything. This is your God. The complexity of the human fabric, that's how powerful God is. He's involved in the development of every preborn child. Period. End of discussion. Down to the depths of the earth. I can't imagine the details. Can you? The I? Have you ever watched a special about the intricacies of the, just the I alone? And then he says, not only have I made you, you are people of destiny. I've ordered your days. I... I'm writing the chapters. I'm writing the books. You're not outliving willy nilly. God has a plan for your life. You're people of destiny. It's all mapped out. You think you're being in rebellion to God. You think you're sinning in secret. You're not. You're just not. There's great confidence in the sovereignty and the providence of God. And the psalmist just keeps bringing it home. He's the potter, you're the clay. He's infinite, you're finite. And we are objects of God's constant care. How much so? Right? Every time in every one of the sections, how well does he know me? How, how powerfully, I mean, how how detailed is he in, in writing all this stuff down? Like, has he got it all down? Is, is he using a journal? Like what 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 is that? You know, does he know what a moleskin is? I mean, come on. Look at it, verse 17. Oh, back up, verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and in your book were written every single one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was not one of them. This is before you took your first breath. How much does God think about you? Look at it. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them? Oh, if I would count them, they're like the sands of all the shores of all the seas on all the earth. Let me tell you this, folks. Look up. God thinks a lot more about you than you probably think about him. And the implication is we ought to think more every single day. Our thoughts are consumed, right? Set your affections on things above where our hearts ought to be consumed with thoughts about God. Why? Because he's thinking about you all the time. He's got an eye on you all the time. He's got his hand upon you. Nothing can happen to your life. Not one thing, bad, evil, can happen to your life where it doesn't pass through the providence and the sovereignty of God. Every single dimension of our lives. There's incredible care here, incredible solace and affection. Um, this isn't me exaggerating in the text. This is the truth. This is who God is. He's omnipotent. He does this without lifting a finger. Can you grasp the commitment of God towards you, sir? madam We're never alone. You can never say nobody cares, it's just not true. You can never say I have nobody to turn to, it's just not true, right? Like the sands of the sea, David says, I I can't imagine the details, I can't imagine the details. Folks, you don't have privacy. You can't run far enough, and you'll never imagine the details of an awesome sovereign God. Fourth and final. Fourth and final. God is holy, pristine, perfect, precise holiness. And here's the implication I don't get away with anything, He knows my secrets. He's all holy, I am not. And I don't get away with anything. And what happens in this final section is it's abrupt. It's coarse. It's hard. Let's read it. Oh that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. O oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. What in the world? Quite a, he like slams on the brakes, right? I mean, he just like, and you're like, what is he doing? There's such an abrupt, um, he's exasperated. You can feel it in the text. You You can read between the lines and go, man, something's not right here. <clears throat> he starts firing these caustic barbs. Basically what he's doing is this. He is feeling the full weight of these lofty thoughts about God and how awesome God is and how, how unique God cares for each single one of us here this morning. And he cannot imagine somebody hating God. He cannot imagine somebody not wanting to give their life to Christ. He can't have, he doesn't have a category for why would you hate someone that does this when you don't deserve any of it and you're a sinner? Why would you even go there? And basically says, hey, what disturbs God disturbs me. And if they hate you, I hate them. And if they're mad at you and they can't see the goodness of God, then I'm mad at them. He's basically siding with God. He's taken up God's defense and he's just kind of caustic in in, in how he does it. He says, listen, your enemies are my enemies. I'm grieved over, you know, their sin and their sins making me mad. We can get like this, can we not? We can get like this in our thinking sometimes and think... And forget our own sin. But look what happens between 23 and 24. As fast as he slammed on the brakes, he realizes, "Uh uh-oh, I'm out over my skis here. And he says, oh, search me, oh God, and know my heart. Mm. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. So what's happening there is he's grieved over their sin. And then again, he's arrested by his own sin. He's arrested by his own hypocrisy. He's arrested by his own imperfection. In light of God's perfect perfection and God's pristine holiness. And so, as he seeks to take up God's cause, he realizes man, I am way, way over my skis on this deal. He wished that all people would respond like he did in verse 6 with wonder and awe and praise. They do not. And so what happens between verse 22 and verse 23 is zeal. His zeal for the Lord, his passion for the Lord gives way to humility. He says, it's not just evil all around me. It's actually evil in me. Look at me. And then he prays. A dangerous prayer, one I want you to pray with me. But look at it. He invites. In verse 1, you remember, he uses the same language. He says, you've searched me and you've known me, right? Now he does an invitation. Lord, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. Know my thoughts. Know my motives. See if there's anything grievous in my life. And lead me in the way everlasting. That is our prayer as we close this morning. Is it not? A dangerous one. Lord, dig deep. Excavate. I invite you to excavate. And and to pull away all the dirt. All the shenanigans. Right? Sins of omission. Blind spots. Faults. Ill motives. Judgmentalism. Criticism. You could... There's a litany of things. And remember, you're not hiding your sin from God. You can put on a good, you can, you can play act all you want here at Grace Church Miami. You're not play acting in heaven. Secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. He's basically saying, God, uncover, right? Pry away any sin. Lead me in the way of everlasting. Do a work in my life. Transform me. Make me more like your precious son. Examine me, know me, test me, try me, lead me. And I love how he ends in the everlasting, the righteous path as Proverbs 3 commends it to us. Folks, I'm here to remind you this morning, came all the way from California to remind you that God is all-knowing and you have no privacy. I'm here to remind you that He sees everything, and you cannot escape. And I beg you to stop running, because you will not outrun God. He's all powerful. You're never alone. He's in the details. He cares about the details. You know, He every single piece of your life, He's intricately involved. He's hemmed you in. And He's holy. He's a holy and a righteous God. And we are called to pursue that level of holiness, that, that achievement is impossible in this life, but we, we strive nonetheless, right? Nothing's hidden. When we're tempted to be filled with hypocrisy, we're sobered up by his holiness. And so I beg you this morning to pray a dangerous prayer like that. Jesus said the same thing in when he spoke in Revelation 2, where he said he walked among the golden lampstands, which were the churches in, 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 in Asia Minor, it's the same thing. He's present. He's the unseen, all-present, all-knowing God in every single one of our lives. And here's the question I want to end with. Is that a threat or is that a thrill? It depends where you're at with Jesus this morning. If you've repented of your sins and you trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is thrilling, comforting. Man, it just brings me so much joy. And, and, and the gravity of it and all of it is just epic, right? It's an epic text. This is the Mont Blanc of, of all the Psalter, right? But if you're not in Christ, you've never repented of your sins, You've sat here a long time. This ought to threaten you. Because this is the God of the Bible. These are the attributes. This is what makes God, God. And you can fool everyone around you. But ma'am, you're not going to fool God. I ask you to repent. I need to repent. This text is weighty for me. It's such a strong reminder for me. And I hope it served your soul this morning